And uh, we're going to be looking at that tonight. We're going to see what led to Paul being thankful, or how I put this is, is more in the lines of what are the marks of a healthy church, which is what led to Paul thanking God for it. So we're going to see, anyhow, Second Thessalonians, we're going to get into this. I'll start off doing a little bit of overview here of the book. That certainly won't take long because it, it's just Second Thessalonians. The, the, I did the primary overview when we started First Thessalonians, so I'll just do a quicker one by way of introduction and then get into the message tonight. But let's read the first five verses this evening of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Sylvanius and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, ask for your blessing tonight. I pray for your mercy and grace. Lord, help me to stay true to your word. Lord, control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray that would bear fruit, that your word would have free course, that would speak to hearts and draw us closer to you. Lord, please remove those things that that are hindering, those blocks that we have in place that, uh, uh, that we put up that hinder God's word from bearing fruit as it should. I pray that this would be a special time around your word and that it would truly help us to grow in the faith. Lord, please bless now. And I do pray if there's anyone here who's never truly been converted, Lord, I certainly do pray for their conversion this evening. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Oh, a couple of updates. I I talked to Israel Warren this week, um, or yesterday he had called. And if you know about Pickett's point there, he's been out of that since COVID. And that was where he was at on Sunday mornings and Sunday night there in St. Mary's. Starting, I believe it's this Sunday, he's allowed back in there. So they've opened the door. They've invited him back in there again. He was really excited about that. And, uh, and the other thing, I'll just wait. Not, not that, that. Anyhow, let's, we'll, we'll get into Second Thessalonians here. Uh, obviously, the author is just, is just like First Thessalonians. We're dealing with the Apostle Paul. This is a church that we've looked at extensively when we started First Thessalonians that was started by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, which we're getting ready to jump into in Acts. We're going to finish up with James addressing on Sunday um, the church, and then we're going to be getting into the second missionary journey where Paul heads out. He's not exactly where to show when he exactly where to go when he initially heads out for it. Then he gets he gets the Macedonian call, as we refer to it. He heads over into Europe. He heads to Philippi. Then he heads over to uh, Thessalonica, which is which is when him and Silas went there and they planted this church in Berea, down to down to Athens, then over to Corinth. He's in Corinth when he's writing Second Thessalonians as well right now. Against uh, the church uh, at Thessalonica, or the church, excuse me, the city of Thessalonica was a key city. It's 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 on a port. It, it's it's a major place of serious commerce because not only is it a port, but there's a major trade route between east and west that takes place there. It was very cosmopolitan. Um, it was it was very paganistic. 
It was the capital of Macedonia, and, and it would be a, a crucial place to have a strong church there established. And that's exactly what we see taking place. It was also known for its crime. When I was studying it for this time, I came across this quote in regards to the crime that was there. I thought I would read this. It reminds me almost of Chicago, just a major city in our country that's just packed with crime. Uh, One commentator put it like this when it came to this town during Paul's day. Murder was common. Prostitution was rampant and well-organized. Historians tell us that obscene pictures be painted on the walls of houses. Babies were abandoned. People had to bar their doors and windows because of crime. Um, the fact that it was a trade town it made it even worse. Uh, anyhow, it goes on from there. But it was a violent place to live as well. And even though it had a fairly strong economy, many times you see a strong economy, you usually don't see as much crime. But with everything taking place, there was still it was still crime was a major problem. And again, you can read Acts 17 to see when this church got started. Remember, it was the three, after those three Sabbath days. Now, I lean towards the idea that he wasn't just there three weeks. I think there's other indications from other parts that he dealt with the three Sabbath days with what took place, um, but that he was probably there a, a, a bit longer. Not certain. It really doesn't matter either way. But we know after that, the Jews had basically hired some wicked men to come and cause this great uproar that took place. It almost turned into this riot. And anyhow, Paul and Silas, they escaped by night. That's when they head over to Berea. And so from that, from that moment on, this church had to endure a lot of persecution and a lot of suffering. And remember, after he left there, Paul gets down to Athens and, and he's worried about the church. And so he sends Timothy back. He's just, with all the hardship they had, he knew what it was like when he left. It was bothering him. He said, I need you to go back and check. So Timothy goes back. And checks, and he comes back, meets up with Paul back in Corinth, and he gives this great report. Paul is just thrilled. The church was going, it was thriving, they were still enduring a lot of suffering and persecution. And and they had some confusion over the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that led to 1 Thessalonians, and he sent the letter out. Now, this letter here is written just a very short time after 1 Thessalonians. Some, after 1 Thessalonians. Probably somewhere between three and six months after he had sent the first letter, he sends this one. So we know what happened was, we don't have the details of it or who told him, none of that's in Scripture, but clearly he got a report back of what was taking place in the church. And that's what leads to this letter. And so we don't know exactly what it said, but we know by these three chapters what problems were occurring that Paul had to address. Um, and we're going to see this. You know, in, 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 in chapter 1, we see they're still facing great suffering and persecution, yet they're enduring. Chapter 2, uh, we see the report had to deal with the church being confused still about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps even a false letter that had come in from Paul's name that had led to error. We know there was at least uh, some false teachers there in regards to the second coming. But all of a sudden there's an error that had come in that they believed uh, about the second coming that really was going to happen at any second. I mean, we're here, it's now. Um, and, and some relate that to Paul in First Thessalonians with them saying the day of the Lord is at hand. And so... And so you had people all of a sudden, and so that's what the second chapter deals with. And the third chapter deals with the problems because they were believing that. They had, they had men that were quitting their jobs. And they ended up mooching off others in the church that didn't quit their jobs because they thought it was going to happen at any moment. So it led to problems 
that were taking place in the church. And so then Paul sends uh, um, this letter out. And, and he understood that the reason for the problems were a result of what was happening with their belief at the second coming. It was still a church that he was, as you're going to see as we go through this, it, it's, not, it's not like when he wrote Corinth. I mean, there were churches that were so, uh, that gave Paul such heartache. This church is not one of them. I mean, the problems he's dealing with here is not one of them. The, this is not authoritative at all throughout. It, it's with love. It's with kindness. He knows the problems are from this, the, the bad doctrine that has come in. And, and, and they, were, they were convinced, okay, it's any day. It's any day. And, and, and what they were doing as a result of that. So he's, he's writing to tell them, no, no, you, you, you've got that wrong. And so he gives, which is crucial for us, because you think of how the Lord used it. It gives us some key details about the Lord's return that are in this epistle. And so we'll get into that. And so that's what's taking place. And if you were to read this, it would take you, you know, 10 minutes to read this book in the morning. Uh, you, would, you would see that's how the book reads. You could clearly see the divisions of what Paul is dealing with. Chapter 1, dealing with the issue of persecution and, and them staying faithful during their trials. A second chapter, dealing with Christ's return, correcting errors that they misunderstood. The third chapter, dealing with problems that arose because of the false teaching. Now, Paul puts, of course, Silas and Timothy, they are mentioned with him. Uh, Sylvanus there, that's his Roman name. Silas is his Jewish name. I think we all should have Roman names. I think that would be pretty neat. Daniel Evictus. Um, I want a Roman name. <laughs> but no, that's just his Roman name, what you see there in the... I don't know how I got off on that. We don't have to... Uh, anyhow. But uh, Silas is with him. Silas, of course, traveled with Paul on a second missionary um, journey after there was the strong disagreement with Barnabas over John Mark. We're getting ready to get right into that in the book of Acts. We'll be there probably in just a few weeks. Um, covering that disagreement that does take place. Later, we see him uh, writing a letter for Peter. Um, look over in Acts chapter 15. This was a key man. Silas was not just... I mean, the people that Paul had around him were impressive. One of my Bible college classes where was entitled... Uh, how do they call it? It was the, the men around Paul. The men that Paul used. But 15.22 says this in Acts chapter 15, verse 22. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, sur, uh, surname uh, uh, Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. So he was a key leader in the church at Jerusalem. Um, this was, uh, this was, uh, obviously with Peter using him, Paul using him and, uh, anyhow, it was a strong, good brother. And Paul ends up taking him on the second missionary journey. And then of course we have Timothy. Timothy, of course, would have been led to the Lord during Paul's first missionary journey there in Lystra and in, in, of mixed, uh, um, a Gentile father and a Jewish mother. And, and anyhow, of course he travels with Paul here on his second missionary journey. Um, and as well on his third missionary journey. We know the Bible has a lot of great things about Timothy. And we have two letters that are written to him by the hand of Paul. He is, he's near Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. He served in Ephesus. He spent some time in prison himself and, and just such a faithful brother. I mean, by the way of the reading of 2 Timothy, when Paul is ready to die, it is as if Paul is saying, my ministry is now yours. Um, this is going on to you, Timothy. And so, another impressive man. And so, these are the three men that are together. You have Paul, the leader. It is his letter. 
and Silas is with him, and Timothy is with him, um, who the church in Thessalonica knew all three men. So anyhow, now let's jump into our text. That's just by way of introduction, a little bit of overview about 2 Thessalonians, but let's jump into the text today. And let me start off by changing gears here, um, by... You know, when you head to the doctor, I've had one in a couple of years. When you go to get a physical, the doctor just does some simple things. If there's no major injury, nothing, you're not feeling anything wrong. He just does some simple, simple things to try and determine if you're healthy. He'll check your blood pressure, your pulse. He'll check your weight. He'll check your breathing. Any other key indicators that might be in place, anything telling him, let's know we might have a problem here. He's trying to determine how healthy you are. And so how I want to parallel that into our text today is I believe what we have here are some key attributes that are given in these first five verses of what demonstrates a truly healthy church. One that if it had a physical, these would be the key things that need to be in place. So we're going to see uh, the the cornerstones of the Christian uh, life, faith and love. That's going to be the first thing we're going to look at. Their faith and the love. Those things need to be in place. I would almost equate those, as you'll see as I go through this, almost like your blood pressure, your pulse. What's taking place? Your faith and your love are going to determine that. Then we're going to look at the consistency and the challenges they faced. More like their immune system. When they had to deal with great challenges and trials, how did they do? And then lastly, we're going to look at character and their attitude. This would dealt with their thinking and their vision. But they had, they had clear thinking, which helped them greatly. So the three things we're going to look at, again, cornerstone attributes of, of Christianity, faith and love. Then we're going to look at the consistency they had in challenges they faced. And then character, their character and their attitude. So first of all, let's dive into this. Cornerstone attributes of the Christian faith, uh, of Christianity, let's put it that way, faith and love. Verse number three. He said, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So here, again, here, here's where Paul started off. I'm thanking God for this church. He knows this is a good, strong church. I mean, this is a church, as we're going to see, that he glories in. This is a church that he boasts about. This is a church that is actually healthy and strong. And so we're going to take what Paul, what God, through God's Holy Spirit, put down here in God's Word for eternity that were marks of what a strong, healthy church look like, looks like. What made this church healthy? That's what we want to see here. And the first thing is, was their faith and their love. Some key attributes of the Christian life. These are two things that no doubt the Lord will rejoice over in our life if they were strong. Strong in faith and strong in love. We all would recognize that those two things throughout all of Scripture are key. Paul even points out how he felt bound to thank God for it. It's as if the word means, I don't have a choice. When I think about what's happening there, I have no choice but to thank God for how you are abounding in faith. I mean, these are all still baby Christians. This church at the time of this writing is still not a year old. They're baby Christians, yet they've been under tremendous persecution, lots of trials. They've been under suffering since conversion, and they're staying strong. And Paul is just amazed at their faith. You think from Paul's perspective, too, he grew up in in, in Judaism. He grew up still knowing God to a degree. 
as, as best he could with the knowledge he had. And even the moment he realized that Jesus was in fact the Christ, that man repented and put his faith in him immediately. This was a man who truly wanted to know God. He comes into this pagan, crime-ridden city. He has these men who convert after several weeks of preaching. Persecution hits immediately, and here they are, in the midst of all that suffering, staying strong. He's just amazed at their faith in God. The word means there, when he, when, he, when he talked about being bound, it means deep obligation. He said because their faith was enlarged. I, I like how one commentator said this. I was just going to try and rebrass. I'm just going to quote him. He said it. I didn't. He said this. He's, he was pointing out what he said here about a strong church and their faith was enlarged. He said, he said, it doesn't say because your attendance is greatly enlarged. It doesn't say because your buildings are greatly enlarged. It doesn't say because your choir is greatly enlarged. It doesn't say because your Sunday school is greatly enlarged. It doesn't say because your bus fleet is greatly enlarged. It doesn't say we're thankful, so thankful because your pipe organ is greatly enlarged. Uh, your rock band is so effective. Your stained glass windows are so nice. He says, we're thankful to God all the time for you, under obligation to express it because your faith is greatly enlarged. I mean, think today what, what, what the world tries to see as a successful church today. It's not what's described right here. Paul was rejoicing to hear their faith was growing, it was enlarged. This was demonstrated by the fact that they were enduring because of the persecution that they were under. And this is proving, by the way, true conversion. Persecution, all really, I'm, I'm going to say almost, persecution will destroy any faith that's not genuine. True persecution, it'll remove it. You'll quit. You can think of Matthew chapter 13 when it dealt with as a matter of fact, let me just read those. In Matthew chapter 13, with the seed that was sown there in the parable, he said this, I believe it's 20 and 21 and 13. Let me see. Make sure that's the part that, it, yes. Yep. But he that received the seed in the stony places, that's what I couldn't remember, the stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and with anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not rooted himself, but dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. So the fact that they were enduring was one, showing true conversion. <clears throat> and I'm going to quote another commentator here. He said this, Trouble, persecution, distress, affliction, pain, drives the true believer to the Lord. When you're driven to the Lord, you learn to know Him more deeply and more. And the more you know Him, the more you trust Him. That's how trust grows. I would go so far as to say that it's hard for faith to grow without difficulty, without persecution or affliction or trouble or trials or stress. Because God has no opportunity to draw you to Himself and display His love and mercy and power. And that's very true. Faith begins to grow when it's tested, when, when, you're, when you're a genuine convert and the difficulty arises and you turn to the Lord. The truth is an easy life without any difficult almost every time will lead to a very shallow faith. You can think of Hebrews chapter 11, that, that great hall of faith, the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. All those faced 
suffering, difficulty, persecution, trial, difficulty, something they were faced with that demonstrated their faith. We need to see the importance of our faith growing, enlarging, how it can help you every single day in your life. You see, your faith and the ability for it to grow and, and, and hopefully growing just a little bit each day, you don't know what you're going to face tomorrow. Your ability to face that right has much to do with where your faith is. Think about this. What carried Job through all of his suffering? How about when he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth? Or though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Faith. Paul understood by what this church was facing, their faith was strong. What allowed their faith to grow, of course, they were truly converted. It's not going to grow without a genuine conversion, the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. Exercising a faith. Paul's prayer. If you, by the way, it's neat here. If you compare chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians to this one, Paul was praying about these things and they were answered. Their faith did grow. Their love did grow. Their hope did increase. And, of course, the Word of God itself. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Next, we see their love for still under this key uh, cornerstones of Christianity. Not only was their faith strong, but their love was abounding towards each other. Their love for each other was strong. Obviously, we know this pleases the Lord about our church. I mean, Christ talked about it during his ministry. We have the book, books like First John that get into great detail of the importance of our love for each other. This is something that, as we see here, pleases the Lord about a church. Not the attendance, not the programs, but a church that's not only strong in faith, but that has a genuine care and love for each other. Not where there's one where there's always disunity and, 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 and vying for place and, and, and disagreements and, and self-centeredness, and, but, but a church that genuinely cares for each other. Before God, that's a sign of a healthy church. That's a sign of something that's right. A church that cares for each other. Not self-centeredness. Not look at me. Not what can you do for me. But a love for each other. We're not dealing with some mushy feeling when he's talking about love here. He's talking about love in action. Genuinely caring for each other. Loving each other. Persecution was showing this was true. I mean, let's face it. If, if you don't have genuine love... And when trials and persecution hit, you're gone. Only thing you're going to become is difficult because you're going to be self-centered on your problems and it will become about you. You're not going to have time to love anybody else because you think everybody else should just love you. And that's true. But the sign of a healthy, strong church is that even when they're having, in the midst of having to endure, they're looking out for each other. They're looking out for each other. This is what demonstrates a healthy church. This will be much different what you're reading in, in these simple five verses right here than when you go to the Christian bookstore and read how to have a successful church. <clears throat> One commentator said this, God never evaluates a church ever by its external features. He never evaluates a church for its innovation, its cleverness, its artistry, its political influence, for its so, or its social prominence, its size, or anything else on the outside. 
A church to be proud of is a church where the people are real Christians who have an increasing faith that has been tested and out of it a growing love that flows unhindered among them all. Yep, that's exactly right. That's the demonstration of a strong, healthy church. Some where Paul said, I, I have no choice but to thank God for you. Remember, as you go through the, the, the epistles that the Lord gives us that are directed to different local churches, you're not going to find one like this. The closest one you're going to find this is the, book, uh, is the one at uh, Church of Philippi. So, the first mark that we see of a healthy church was these cornerstones of Christianity. Faith and love, and they're growing. They're heading the right direction. And the direction is what's important. It's not even necessarily how big it is. It's that it's growing. It's not stagnant. It's not going backwards. It's heading the right direction. Number two, consistency in challenges. Look at verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Here they stay consistent. They stayed faithful in their challenges. We see as we read this verse, Paul literally was bragging about this church to other churches. I mean, he's, he's, he's there, of course, in Corinth. And we see it, actually, when he comes back and even writes uh, uh, 2 Corinthians, again, bragging on the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is where, of course, that's like it was the capital of Macedonia. He would be bragging on them because of, he, he thought of how they handled the persecution, how they handled the difficulty and the tribulation. The word for patience here, it's a great word. It actually means consistent. What Paul is saying here, they're facing all this, yet they're not changing. They're not letting it hinder their growth. Even though they're facing incredibly difficult circumstances, they didn't quit. This is the sign of a healthy Christian. This is the sign of a healthy church. That even when trials come in, it stays the same. It's not everybody bailing out. Not everybody bailing out. You're willing to endure. You're going to stay patient. No. We're going to stay, we're going to stay on target. We're going to stay on target. <clears throat> and the key, of course, to their enduring, as is brought up once again in this verse, was their faith, their faith in God. Faith in knowing God knows what's going on. God knows what's happening. Faith to trust God in all that's happening. I remember... When I had led one of, the, one of the first converts to the Lord in the work in Kudu Kudu, I think it was the third or fourth convert. I can't remember which. It was within the first five, no question about it. And her name was Lavinia. And Lavinia had started coming, and she was uh, probably about seven, eight months pregnant when she started coming. And I led her to the Lord, and she was all excited. She was trying to put her faith in Christ. The very, the very next day, she had to head up to Cavian, uh, five hours away, for a medical checkup with the baby. Something was going on. Well, she gets there, and the baby had died. There's no doctor there. Usually, Cavian has a doctor five hours. There's no doctor down by us, but usually, Cavian has a doctor there, or two even. There's no doctor there. 
And so then she had to stay there with the dead baby week after week. They didn't induce her. They didn't, weren't sure what to do. Then finally a doctor showed up and they went in and, and induced her. And she delivered her dead baby that had been dead for some time in her womb. Remember, the last time I saw her was the day that I led her to the Lord. So in my mind, I am thinking, especially with all the superstition in the village, I am concerned I'm going to lose her. She, she is going to relate this. She's going to listen to people in the village. She's going to relate this. She went to that Baptist work. Look what happened to her. God judged her. And I'm thinking I'm going to lose her. It was just the opposite. Exactly what the Bible says. When there's genuine conversion, trials draw you closer to the Lord. You don't run from them. You draw closer. She was the one I still remember she showed up. It was, a, it was about 7, 8 o'clock at night. I mean, it's dark. It's daylight there. It doesn't change. It's the exact same year round, 6 to 6, 365 days a year. And uh, it, was the la- it was the last day of malaria for me, just about the last day of malaria. Still a little bit sick. And, and she started, yes, yeah, she was down. She was, our house was up on stilts. She was down below yelling. And I went down, and she had the dead baby in her arms. And she needed a ride back out to the village. She managed to get a ride from Cavian down to Nematanai, and she asked if I could take her out to the village. And uh, actually, it was later than that, because I didn't get home until after midnight. So it's probably about 9, 10 o'clock at night right now. It's an hour drive out. And so I said, sure. I had her get in the car, and then the stench of the dead baby's body was horrible. And I still have malaria. And so about 15 minutes down the road, I had to stop and open that door and... I didn't have dinner, so I don't know what came up, but whatever was in my stomach came up. Shut the door and headed on down. But I still listened to her talk. There, there wasn't an indication of blaming God, anything. She was just telling me, can you come back in the morning? She wanted me back about 6 in the morning, and we'll do the burial right then. We'll have the funeral right away, and we'll bury the baby. And, uh, and sure enough, that's exactly what we did. Went out there the next day, and then the Lord used her funeral to bring other people into our church, the baby's funeral. Because then I, I got there that morning, and at a village funeral, everybody comes. I mean, everybody. There's no, you don't not go to a village funeral. And everybody's there, and that was my first time getting to preach to everybody in the village of Rantibis. <clears throat> so it did nothing but strengthen her. And that's what happens when you're truly converted. As I was studying this, I'd never, I'd never heard of this. I was reading this, I was astonished. There's actually this Christian book written that deals with why Christians suffer. And the premise is horrible. I hope nobody here is right. I, I, I don't have the name of it even written down here. And I just couldn't believe it. One of the things that directs you to do as a Christian when you're going through suffering and you're struggling with it, get this, I'm not exaggerating, is to forgive God. To forgive God. You have to get to the place in your suffering where you forgive God. Listen to me. That's nonsense. That's outrageous. That again is this humanistic, self-centered approach to Christianity. It's about faith in God and knowing He's in control. He is right and He is good in what He does. God doesn't need to come to you after you're going through suffering saying, Will you please forgive me? I had to do it. It was for your own good. 
He's God. Let's not forget who He is and who you are. Do you think that the church in Thessalonica was around the table? Listen, men, we just need to forgive God. Not at all. They understood life was about God. The word patience here is interesting because it also implies a key word. It's not the meaning of it, it's just an implication of it. And that is hope. In other words, it's hope that gives the strength to that word patience. Hope. I mean, really, think of the hope that we do have. I was, when I was at the hospital with Roger, and he was just talking, I've just been in and out of the hospital, and this and that. He said, it's not one thing, it's just another thing. And I said, you know what? I said, wouldn't it be great if the rapture would just happen tonight? And do you understand the hope that we do have? I mean, it's amazing. I mean, what is in store? What that gives us, the hope that we have because of conversion. It's incredible. And so a church that is healthy, even when it's facing great challenges, you know what? It stays consistent. It doesn't quit. It endures. It endures. Last point. Verse number five. Verse five can be tough when you just read it. It's one of those when I read, I'm like, okay. This will take a few minutes. Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. When you think of context, by the way, not I see. You got to put this in context with the reading of it, with what he just said, what was going on with the church at Thessalonica. Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. This verse is teaching us a way that God uses suffering. He won't waste it. It's part of life. Suffering will occur. But listen to me. God doesn't waste it. There's a lot that goes on. One, God understands everything that is taking place. He will judge all things righteously and perfectly. And how I'm taking this will be the gist of what Paul was driving in that verse. I said it's how I put this point was character in their attitude. Or I could have put character in their perspective. He's dealing with the suffering still that they're going through. But he points something out. Why were they suffering? That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, he's not dealing with suffering to gain salvation. They were saved. He's dealing with their perspective. I said, I said you know, this one is sort of like their vision or their clear thinking. It was their attitude. It was how they viewed life. Or a key word of today is their worldview. The majority of people today, by far, hands down, are very much focused, are man-centered. This church was God-centered. They were focused on the kingdom. That's what enabled them to endure the suffering. Their attitude, their approach, how they viewed it. They were living out Matthew 6.33. They were making their life about the kingdom of God. Do you understand, this is a group of people that was assembling, that when they heard Paul preach, you know, sometimes I think when we, when we grow up in Christianity, 
it is, it, which is a blessing. That's a good thing. I don't mean this in a bad way. But there are dangers you have to look out for. There are certain things that no longer have an awe. There's not a marvel to it. So, so you miss out. This is a church. Get this. These were pagans prior. Roman gods. Vile city. You know, who knows what they were involved in here? You know, no doubt some businessmen with all the trade and commerce that were taking place. Prostitution everywhere. This man comes in, a missionary, preaching about the true God. They hear it and they come. They're listening to this man preach, initially just in a synagogue. They want to listen. They're hearing this man preach about one true God, the Creator. And, and probably they had heard about this man, Jesus Christ. That's very possible. They're hearing this. And you can just see the Holy Spirit convicting, showing them, this is true, this is right. And so, think about this. You're a man, let's say you're 35 years old. You've been living this life. You have no doubt there's been times in your life where you know, you were growing up and they told you, here is your God. Some idol. Here it is. This thing, here's your prayers. I got news. When you're 35 years old, there's plenty of times in your life you're like, this thing doesn't hear anything. And you can't say it out loud because it's your culture. It would be, you know, you don't be outcast. But inside you know, this is stupid. I mean, my friend... Jovanius, give him a Roman name for Joe. I was there when he made this. I was there when he put the idol together. So they know this is stupid. And now he's hearing this man preach. And on top of it, think about this. So on top of the man, it's not just the man preaching. It's the fact that the creator himself is, is just hitting their heart. This is truth. And then they made that decision when faced with it. Oh, I am repenting and placing my faith in Christ. It changed everything. How they viewed the world. Now their life was no longer about this kingdom. It was about God's kingdom. That's how their perspective changed. You know what that did for them? When the suffering came, because they had the right worldview, they endured. They endured. Again, if they're man-centered, mm-mm. because now comfort and their own personal happiness becomes more important than the kingdom. But because it was about the kingdom of God, they were willing to suffer. They were willing to suffer. Again, they were living out Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Their focus was not on being happy. Their focus was not on personal fulfillment. Their focus was not on personal comfort. Their focus was not on self-satisfaction. It was not on success. There was no prosperity gospel being preached. There was no uh, uh, psychology coming through. There was no self-help messages. They were focused on the kingdom of God. And a healthy church 
is focused on God's kingdom. That's what it's about. So we see three critical things here why Paul was bound to thank God for this church. What made it healthy and strong. Again, it wasn't the programs. It wasn't the attendance. It was their faith and love were going the right direction. They were growing. They were growing. It was, as you get into verse 4, even, even when the suffering was there, they were enduring. They were consistent. Had that patience and faith in all your persecution and tribulation that you endure. They didn't quit. They didn't quit. And then we see a key form was their character, their characters as people, as a church, in their perspective. Their perspective was not man-centered. It was not on self. It was on God and His kingdom. That's what life all of a sudden was about. See, one of the differences when it wasn't just culture and you grew up in that pagan land is they actually believed it. They did. What Paul was preaching, they really believed it. It wasn't just stories. They believed it. They believed it. With heads bowed and eyes closed.